Okay. Wait, is the is this correct? Let's just go ahead and start here. Wait till that's done. Okay. Okay. Alright guys, total honesty time, this is probably going to be a short video. Initially I wasn't even sure I wanted to do a video about this one, but for various reasons, which include scheduling, the fact that I wanted to talk about this game at all, and the fact that I did have a few things to share means we're going to go ahead and go through this. So this is probably going to be one of those half-hour short jobbers. I mean, you've seen me ruminate on Doom, right? For God's sakes. So, first of all, uh, Phantom Hourglass is probably one of those games like Four Swords Adventures that you've never played. Uh, it's a little more commonly known since it's a DS game and the DS kind of exploded in terms of availability and popularity. So there's a pretty good chance you've at least had the possibility of playing this game. But most people I've talked to have not actually played this game. Or they tried to play it and they said, screw this, and flung it out the window. And I don't fully blame them on that. It is a damned shame, though. See, here's the thing about Phantom Hourglass. It is probably the most innovative Zelda I've ever seen. I mean that sincerely. It really pushed the boundaries of what you could do with the gameplay and tried to be unique and special basically all the time. If I can parallel to it to a much more modern game, there's a Wii U Kirby game called uh, Rainbow Curse or something like that. Uh, Rainbow Star Curse thing. I don't know. Which is an extremely unique, very innovative, very inventive game with awesome level design and wonderful variety in what you can do and how you can do. At no point did it feel like I was just rehashing the levels. The catch is there's basically 20 stages in the entire Kirby game I just mentioned. That's it. So it's very short, it's not really that memorable, and it doesn't really do much other than in be inventive, be innovative. This is one of the problems with innovation in game design. Most of the times when you have a game that really pushes the limits, it doesn't sell well, or doesn't do well. And, the, it, and it's actually kind of obvious why, because the only thing that is really worthy of note saying about both of these games, you know, just, just in summary, is they were really inventive, they were very innovative. You with me? Um... Now, that being said, one thing I've noticed uh, in game design, and this is true in the Zelda series as well, is if you have one game that really pushes the limits, the next game, if it tries to iterate on that, to try to, to use all, you know, now that we've found the limits of technology and design, why don't we apply that better? Why don't we have better level design, better story progression, better cutscene, better uh, game, you know, just, just polish what already is. Effectively, the second game being an expansion pack, for all intents and purposes, of the first game, and the first game being the one that really pushed the limits of what you could do. Uh, actually, Mario Galaxy 1 and 2 are a great example of this. Mario Galaxy 1 was incredibly innovative and a good game. But Mario Galaxy 2 took those innovations and, in my opinion, did a lot better of a job with it, with much better level design. Just amazing, phenomenal uh, presentation. Lots of polish. I mean, I don't want to gush about that here. I feel that's the same way here. Spirit Tracks, in my opinion, is way superior to Phantom Hourglass because they took the, the, the stuff that they started in Phantom Hourglass and decided to, to polish it and work with it. And it makes sense. First, you're just experimenting. You're trying new things. And then you're like, oh, okay, now that I know what those new things are, now I'm experienced at it, now I can do better. It's logical, right? It doesn't always work that way, but it is logical. I mentioned that because... Well, that's probably the biggest point I have to make about this game right there. 
the, the, the fact that you have to use the microphone at times in order to, to do some of the puzzles. The fact that there's uh, the controls are completely controlled by the stylus. You know, you, you move around to move, you, you do little swirls to slash, and you wiggle at the edge of the screen in order to do the roll. And you basically control the entire game with the stylus. You don't use the buttons at all. You use the stylus to, to draw the charts around on the ocean in order to actually sail. You know, um, there's one of the bosses, one of my favorite bosses in the Zelda history is actually in this game just because of how inventive it is. It's an invisible boss, but you play from its perspective. In other words, the camera is the boss's eyes. You, that's what you're seeing, and you use that to determine where you are, because you still have full control of yourself over there. And you try to figure out where you are and try to hit it and react to it based on that. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, one of the other little features is they'll give you puzzles where it's like you have to be like 3F of I or whatever, and or you can like, this is the path through a maze or whatever. And you're, you have the ability to write on the maps at any point in time, really. You can write notes all over the place on the sea maps, on the world maps, on the actual dungeon maps. And so you're encouraged to make your own notes and to actually help you get through there, which I feel is A, fun, but B, harkens back to what a lot of people, myself included, did back in the old games of this nature, all the way back in the NES and the, the old Commodore and early PC era. We would actually make literal maps. We'd have chunks of paper right by the computer or the, the console or whatever. And be like, okay, this is here and this is here. And it was a nice hearkening back to that. And it, it was fun for the same reason. It's also not actually necessary in this case, which I think is part of why I enjoyed it, because it isn't mandatory in order to get through it. Um, and then, of course, there's the puzzle everyone talks about, which I have to mention. There's one puzzle which most people got stuck on the first time including me, I freely admit it, where you've got, you know, here's the DS, right? And you've got this thing, and it's like mirror image it or whatever. Right? And what you have to do is you have to have to close the DS, and the game will trigger, because there's a specific thing in the DS that notices it's been closed. So when you reopen it, the image is down here, and you, you get it. That's, of course, the one everyone talks about. But my point is, in every respect, on every level, Phantom Hourglass really pushed what the DS could do and used the hardware to its furthest extent. Really, really fun, inventive stuff. I encourage you, if you ever have the time, if you have the availability to, to have a DS or a 3DS, it works both just to find them both, and to get the game, I, I honestly encourage you to try it and play it. It's a lot of fun. With one huge exception. Now, see, uh, you, now, before I get into the exception, though, I do want to mention the combat takes some getting used to because, again, it's 100% controlled by the stylus. So you move around with the stylus, and you tap to swing, and you do the swirl to do the spin and slash. Uh, it, once you get used to it, it is definitely a get used to it. Don't mistake me. Once you get used to it, it's actually very intuitive. Um, I, as I was playing back through it, it only took me a few minutes to get back into the swing of actually controlling the game and having no issues uh, moving around and whatnot. But uh, if you've never played this kind of thing before, if you've never controlled the game like this before, it's probably going to take you a little while to get used to that. I'm not even going to lie about that. But once you overcome that hurdle, the rest of it's just, yeah! Except for the exception. See, well, first of all, well, no, no. Let's just get to let's just get to the big exception. I'm going to stop building it up. It's the frickin' temple you have to do over and over and over. The temple of the Ocean King. You go in and it's like, all right, here's the, you do the first couple floors, and then you leave with the new thing. Then you go do another dungeon. You come back and you do the first couple floors again, and then you do the next couple floors, and then you leave and you do the thing. You go back and then you do the first four floors and the next two floors. It gets old, and it is very padding. 
because it's not even a situation like most Zelda games I can praise the dungeon design because they build into it ways to shortcut back to where you were. In Wind Waker you have the pots. Uh, in Majora's Mask you have ways of, of new utilities or, or specific uh, like pieces being in the right place so you can use the item of the dungeon to get back where you were. Uh, in, in most of the Game Boy ones you have the little warp points. You know, there's always something and there has been something since arguably since Zelda 1, which saves your, your key progress, to help you get back through the dungeon if you die and you go back. In this case, no, you're just doing it over again. I mean, you've got more hearts in a better situation, but you can't even fight the phantoms. That barely it matters. It's mostly just you repeating the damn puzzles over again, and it is pure, unadulterated padding. I actually know someone who did not complete this game because of that padding, because he just got so sick of going through it over and over again that he just put it down and was like, screw it, I'll, I'll watch the rest of it. And that is a damn shame. And that is, in my opinion, the biggest, huge, glaring flaw of this game. So that's the asterisk. You know, I recommend this game other than that one big problem. Now, there are a couple other problems. Uh, this might be one of the lightest Zeldas I've played on story. Uh, not counting the old, you know, NES ones. This is probably about on par with LTTP in terms of story. So there's some setting development, there's some characters, there's one character that gets character growth, just the one. It's Lineback. He's the only one. And then that's really kind of it. I mean, there's not a lot of other things going on other than the big thing, which I'll, of course, be talking about last. So that's the other flaw with this game. And it's something that I feel that Spirit Tracks did a lot better, personally. Um, now, there is some, you know, some aspects of the story. Most of it is setting. Uh, the, the rivalry between the two races, the, I wrote their names down, the Yuke and the uh, Hoki, or however the heck you say their name. Hoki? I don't know. Anyways, those guys uh, on the Frozen Island, the, uh, the way the Cobbles had their own, you know, ancient empire, that kind of thing. Um... There are plenty of ways that that uh, that there is setting building, but it does feel very light uh, overall on the story. The actual plot is incredibly threadbare, but that's fairly normal for a Zelda. There are very few Zeldas that have a strong plot emphasis. Wind Waker, Twilight Princess, Majora's Mask, Ocarina, and uh, that's probably it, really. Um, so, uh, uh, let's talk about the Bellum and Osius thing. Uh, really quick. Bellum, this, I only mention this because of trivia's sake, because uh, I have more to say about Bellum. But Bellum is a squid and Oceus is a whale. And they're in diametric opposite to each other. If you don't get it in real life, squids and whales, especially sperm whales, which is what Oceus is, is modeled after, are pretty much incredible. They're, they're, they're direct competitors in the food chain, so to speak. They're very much rivals. Uh, so that makes a degree of sense. Especially given what we learn about this game. So... That's kind of all I have to talk about other than the big thing. Like I said, not, not really a lot to share about this game. Not a lot to really say. Uh, I do have one big last thing, so I hope this is at least worth sitting down and enjoying this video for. Here's a couple of things. First of all, we know uh, based on what phantoms are, because they're made of that sand, right? And the way phantoms act in spirit tracks, because we get to talk to a few of them when Zelda's possessing one, that they're basically just people. See, the sand that they're made of, that sand is crystallized life force. And that life force has been drained from people by Bellum. So basically these people were normal, ordinary people who are now these phantoms just going about their everyday job as if it was an ordinary, everyday job. Um, now what I mean by that, to explain a little bit, that's more in the Spirit Tracks era. Uh, the phantoms basically haven't, they couldn't fix the phantoms 
So they had to give them some kind of some purpose in order to allow them to keep existing. So they allowed that. Um, but the phantoms here in Phantom Hourglass are just still under the control, direct control of Bellum. So they're probably completely mindless, and at best we're in a Borg situation, a.k.a. the real being that was the person that made up the sand that made the phantom is in there screaming uh, as they are being forced to wander around doing Bellum's will, which probably sounds really fun and enjoyable, I'm sure. <clears throat> but this is related to the overall big thing of Phantom Hourglass. It's that life force thing I mentioned. Uh, like, for example, the Life Force to me, especially having gone through the whole series like I have, with only a few games left in the series to do, it reminds me a lot of the whole life energy force thing that was in Minish Cap and was mentioned as well in Four Swords Adventures. The idea of that kind of power, the Light Force, that, is, that has been descended uh, from Helia, all the way back from Skyward Sword and carrying forward into the future, it makes me wonder if this kind of, this is the exact same thing. That Bellum is simply a creature that feeds on the life force of living beings. Bear with me, because I'm about to give a theory that's probably going to sound very crazy. And I'm sorry, but uh, this is my headcanon as of now, because I've really thought about this, and it just makes too much sense for me. So what we do know is that the sea in Phantom Hourglass is a totally different dimension. Dimension, not world from uh, from the sea that we have in the Great Sea, you know, Wind Waker, right? So this is yet another example of another dimension. As I mentioned back in Majora's, this is not new. They've been, this has been happening several times. This, will, this isn't even the last time we will have an alternate dimension in the Zelda series. It's, it's a common fixture, right? But why this Great Sea, which is so similar to Wind Waker? Well, if you pay attention to the Zelda series, this is my old theory. If you pay attention to the Zelda series, there's a lot of aquatic creatures that are pseudo-mystical, pseudo-spiritual, whatever things that simply have some kind of, again, mystical nature to them. The Windfish and Jabu and all that fun stuff, right? There's several examples. I'm not going to go over all, all of them. It was my original theory, and it is actually still my theory, I should say, that they're all from here. That, this, that is what this place is. This is where all of those mystical creatures and all that, all that whole race of the Jabu and the Jabin and the Windfish and all of them came from this ocean, from the Ocean King's Ocean is actually the term for it. And I like that theory. It especially makes sense because they act around people just fine because they have their own culture and their own people there. But that, that was really making me wonder, why are there people there? And this life force thing, it just kept... It was in the back of my mind, making me think. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop building it up. I think this is the closest thing to Mako, to the live stream that we have in the Zelda series. Now, for those of you who have not played Final Fantasy VII, allow me to elaborate. The idea here is that when someone dies in the regular realm, you know, the prime material plane, whatever you want to call it, they end up in the Ocean King's Ocean. They end up there which is effectively a pseudo-mirror image of whatever the regular world looks like at the time with, with the oceans, naturally. And that life force is reconstituted into people there. And when they die there, they get reconstituted back into the prime material plane. And in this way, there's kind of a cycle of life force going back and forth between the two realms. So it's a form of an afterlife, a form of reincarnation. And since reincarnation is also a fairly large theme in the Zelda series, this, this kind of fits for me. It also explains several things. Um, for example, the... Uh, 
a lot of the species in Phantom Hourglass, in the Ocean's King Ocean, uh, seem to have parallels to one of the major species from outside of the Ocean King's Ocean. Probably the single most important uh, example of this is the Cobbles, who basically are in all but name the Gerudo, and yet they just have this separate name and idea here. And if my theory is correct that the Gerudo are either magically or biologically a different race than the Hylians, which I do think is true, uh, it's either one or the other in my opinion, I would, I would put 100% on that, it would make sense that they wouldn't just manifest as normal people in the ocean, in, in, in the ocean afterlife, I don't know what else to call it, the ocean dimension, uh, um, but it also kind of helps explain why Bellum is a problem now. As I mentioned, it is my strong theory that Ganondorf, back in Wind Waker, had basically moved on from demise. He was still caught with the villain ball. He still had his own problems, but the actual hatred that had drived him in Ocarina of Time had vanished. And that, that hatred was directly from demise. So where did that hatred go? Well, again, Bellum is a recent problem. The cycle of reincarnation has been going on for however long without issue, without trouble, and Oceus has just been running things in his ocean just fine, uh, with, with the one exception. So it makes sense to me that that hatred lost during Wind Waker is what was then transferred, or prior to Wind Waker, so it was transferred into, into the Ocean King's realm. Remember, when we defeat Bellum, finally, he also turns into life force, the crystallized life force, the uh, sand uh, of ours, or whatever they actually call it. So he was just another creature that had been manifested there just like anyone else was. Now, of course, some of that life force is life force he had stolen, and that is Bellum's shtick right there. He actually tries to consume all the life force around him. Which again sounds kind of like something that Demise would do, doesn't it? And so, uh, especially given his kind of parasitic nature thing, but I don't want to get too much into that. Um, and so I think that I've kind of... Uh, finished my point. I don't really know how else to explain my point. I, I feel like I haven't properly explained it, though, because it just makes so much sense in my head. Like, for example, it is only until after Wind Waker that Bellum has the ability, and it's a, a few weeks, months, I forget how, but it's been a short period of time since Wind Waker that Bellum has been able to manifest itself in the Prime Material Plane with the Ghost Ship. Now, it's not that unusual for a creature to go from this spiritual ocean to the regular world, because we've seen it happen, if I am correct, with the Windfish, uh, with Jabu Jabu, etc., so that's already happened. Uh, actually, I guess Windfish would have been after this, technically. But the point being, we have seen that happen prior to this time in this timeline, or in the timeline attached to this timeline. So it just requires sufficient strength or power or will or whatever. And so Bellum, having consumed enough life energy, enough life force from the dead, for all intents and purposes, from the spiritual reincarnations in the spiritual ocean, was they able to manifest in our world and start consuming life force here. This also makes uh, adds to Bellum as a villain because it highlights why he is such a problem. Oceus, by his very nature, represents the continuation of the cycle of life, right? The, and, and this is actually mentioned uh, a couple times throughout the game. Therefore, Bellum naturally would be the opposite of that, especially given he is in every way shown as Oceus's opposite. He doesn't talk at all, whereas Oceus talks all the time. He's a squid. Oceus is the uh, is the whale. Uh, Bellum's color scheme and style is very archaic and, and artificial looking, and it's got the, the creepy vibe. Oceus is designed to be warm, light colors friendly, etc. Um, even their musical themes are basically opposite of each other. 
So it makes sense to me that Be the real threat of Bellum is not just what he's doing to Oceans or that ocean, but what he's doing to stop the cycle of reincarnation. Because just like in FF7 with the life stream, if you pull some of that Mako out and don't recycle it back into the system, the overall net amount of life stream has been reduced. And so less life is being produced. And if this keeps happening, then people will, life will literally reach a point where it dies out. Hence the real threat of Bellum. I also want to talk about Lineback uh, briefly. I don't have much to say about him. His character are, I mean, he's enjoyable. He, he was funny. He was great. Um, he is a good example of cliches are not necessarily bad. Because Lineback is an incredibly cliched character. He is like textbook, by the numbers, I'm a jerk with a heart of gold. But he was enjoyable, his dialogue was well written, he was, he, he was funny in the background in several scenes, and he did complete his arc and journey thoroughly. Uh, this is another thing I like, by the way. Uh, when Oshis grants him his wish, he says he wants his ship back, and yet the next thing we see is that he is in the prime material plane with the rest of them, rather than stuck in the ocean realm. I think his wish, at least in his heart, regardless of what he said with his words, was actually that he wanted to go do what he had always claimed he was. Remember, in Phantom Hourglass, Linebeck, everyone thinks of him as some great adventurer who's famous and brave, and yet he's not. He's just interested in treasure and wealth until it reaches the end of the game and he has completed his character arc where he's like, well, let's actually try this adventure thing. And let's try this, you know, let's go out and actually be explorers and, and pirates and all that fun stuff thing. And so his wish was to be able to do that. And you can't really do that in the spiritual ocean realm. There's not really much to explore there, especially given what's about to happen in the lead-up to Spirit Tracks. See, we know Linebeck was part of the expedition that found New Hyrule. New Hyrule, excuse me. And so that just sounds like the adventure of a lifetime, doesn't it? Finding a new continent and then establishing a new society and culture on it, getting all the movings, all the people. That sounds awesome. And is probably what he was actually wishing for. Not literally, of course. He wasn't saying, I want to be part of New Hyrule. He was saying, I want to adventure. I want to be an adventurer. I want my ship back. Because that ship represents all of that to him, doesn't it? If you really think about it. In the same way that the Black Pearl represented all of those exact same concepts to Jack Sparrow. So that's all I got. It's a shame that I don't have more to talk about. Because this is a genuinely good game. And I do recommend you try it. I know I gave you the big asterisk. Regardless, next week we're going to be looking at a game that I consider personally to be a much superior game with a lot of the same innovations, Spirit Tracks. So I'll see you next week, guys.